Good morning again. Let's go ahead and turn uh, in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 21 through 31 today. 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 31. Let's go ahead and uh, begin today in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your enduring faithfulness. We thank you so much for your kindness and your patience. And I pray that you would help us to understand the text in front of us today. We preach your word, and we ask that you would do that which we know you do with your word, and that is that it never returns void. We thank you for the success of your written word, the Bible. We thank you for your sanctification and how you work in our hearts and drive us closer to Christ. And we pray that you might continue to do this work today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The church in America today is really run in such a way as to distort, in many ways, the giftedness of the Holy Spirit. The church in America today has become, in many regards, a spectator sport. Church leaders and church members both make it this way. Imagine that you were to uh, run your family in the same way that most churches in America are run. very individualistic. Every individual in your family makes their own meal and eats their own meal privately. Every individual gets in their own individual vehicle and goes to their own events and their own schedule and their own time. Nobody ever talks to one another except in kind of just surfacey ways. You're isolated. You retreat to your own room and you get on your phone. You know, are you roommates or are you family members, right? Which is it? Uh, It makes your house look more like Grand Central Station than it does a home. And this is really, in many ways, what the church has become today. The church in America is a hub of activity, a hub of programs, uh, a hub that is a mile wide and an inch deep. The church has become a circus, in some ways quite literally, with pastors ziplining into the pulpits, uh, various PR stunts, anything that can be done to dress up the Word of God. And we have gotten to the point where um, we think that we have made a valuable and lasting contribution to society if we change our social media overlay. I support this cause. I support that cause. And therefore, I'm doing something. Life in the church calls us to live lives that are radically different from the surrounding culture. The church calls us to roll up our sleeves and to get involved in the lives of those around us. We are to be involved, not detached. American culture, on the other hand, calls us to be detached, to be content with going to work, coming home, ordering groceries online, retreating to our rooms, and living a pretty insulated uh, and isolated life. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this about uh, present-day culture. He said, present-day religion far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it. 
and produces a sense of satisfaction and eternal safety rather than a sense of unworthiness and the likelihood of eternal damnation. And this really is what the church, broadly speaking, in America is doing. The church in America is soothing the conscience. The church in America is saying, you don't have to get all worried about that. Um, The church in America, you know, tells us, uh, come as you are and leave as you came. And this is what church here in our world looks like today. Today's passage in front of us is about spiritual gifts. And we've been looking at this passage or or this section in 1 Corinthians uh, for two weeks now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is really an entire section on this topic of spiritual gifts. And so we're slowly working our way through this section. And today, what Paul is addressing is specifically, uh, he's addressing individuals within the church who think that their giftedness is superior to other people. And specifically, by saying, I have no need of you. (laughs) I'm self-sufficient. And if you are one who believes that your giftedness is superior or that you somehow are self-sufficient or that you don't need some other parts of the body, you need the body. And this actually comes on the heels of the text that we saw two weeks ago, which was the opposite problem. And that problem was not saying that I have no need of you, but it was saying You have no need of me because my giftedness is inferior. And if that is your view, then you also need the body. Either way, you need the church. God has designed us to live in context of the local church. So let's go ahead and read this passage today and see what Scripture is teaching us. We're going to pick this up in verse 21 and go through the end of the chapter. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles Second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. We begin here in... Chapter 12 and verse 21 with a rather pointed visual image. He says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
And of course, this represents the opposite side of what we saw two weeks ago. And we'll go back to jog our memory a little bit in verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, uh, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. That passage represents someone who thinks like this. Boy, I don't have the gift of X, discernment. I don't, I don't have the gift of discernment. I only have the gift of helps. Nobody wants that gift. So I'm of no value to the church. How can I ever make a meaningful contribution here? That is one side of the coin. That's one ditch to fall into. Then there's another ditch. There's another error to commit, and that one is represented in today's passage. And that error is kind of represented uh, by someone who might think this way. Boy, I have the gift of X, discernment. And I can't believe that we keep tolerating that nobody who only can stack chairs, or whatever it might be, this person who only can do this particular thing, our church, you know, our church could thrive without that person. Our church doesn't need that individual. And you see, the two errors here that Paul has been addressing in this passage is the one error says the church doesn't need me, and the other error says I don't need the church, or at least I don't need that specific member. I don't need that person in the church. And both errors are a form of individualism. Today's passage is individualistic in the sense that you say, I work alone. I'm going to isolate myself from the church, or I'm going to say, I don't need the, the, the church around me, or I don't need this particular individual within uh, the church. The sin of the individualist is at least twofold, and I'm sure we could add to this, but is at least twofold. Number one, the individualist rejects God's provision for his sanctification in the church. He rejects God's plan for how he should be sanctified. Of course, we should grow in our sanctification all week long throughout the week in various locations, but God has placed the church into our lives as integral to our sanctification. That's the first error that the individualist makes, or the first sin. And the second sin of the individualist is that he has a distorted view of his self-sufficiency. He thinks, I'm kind of self-sufficient. I can kind of do this. All right, so since we're talking about the individualist who says, I don't need these other people, uh, pick the person, pick the person here in the church uh, that you dislike the most. You're not supposed to dislike anyone in the church, okay? But So maybe this is just theoretical, but theoretically, pick this individual in the church um, some of you are like, I just have to pick one only. <laughs> uh, recognize this. You need that person. Whoever that person is, you need them for your sanctification. You need them for their giftedness to shore up your weakness, and you need them. Remember, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. And 
maybe a little point of application right now, and that is uh, if you do have uh, that particular view towards someone here in the church, maybe that's the person you need to invest in more than anyone else right now. Um, Maybe that's the person that you need to go meet up with this week or whatever. Anybody can develop a relationship with people they like. God-haters can do that. People who hate God can build friendships and relationships with people that they like and people that like them in return. But it takes a Christian to develop a relationship with a person that they don't like. I, think, uh, I can think of two ways that a person could say, I have no need of you, as this text is saying in front of us. You could say that by excluding yourself from the church. You could, you could say, I have no need of you, by number one, excluding yourself from the church. Sporadic church attendance or commitment, withdrawing yourself from other people in the church, so on and so forth. When you are acting that way, when you are aloof, when you simply date the church, when you are a spectator, when you don't move in, you are saying this through your actions, I don't need you. That's what the text is saying. I don't need you. I can live my life detached from the church. Now, there is a second way that a person could say, I have no need of you. You could, number one, exclude yourself from the church, or you could, number two, exclude others from the church. Um, You could exclude yourself or others. This could be treating church members as if they were not church members, failing to acknowledge them or interact with them, so on and so forth. This is, either way you take it, the sin of pride. Individualism is pride. God has designed the church to work with all the gears meshing and moving synchronized together, and yet this is the sin of pride to pull out of that. Now, this is only the half of it, because we would perhaps maybe be content if Paul simply left it here and said, okay, uh, you know, we'll tolerate the weaker members. We'll tolerate the people who are not gifted as I am. But Paul actually goes on to say that not only should you tolerate these individuals, but they are, in fact, indispensable to the church. He says in verse 22, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. So if you were to look out at the church and you were to say, I'm gifted in this way and that kind of sets me apart, and then you were to look at someone else and you say, they're kind of gifted in a way that's, Uh, you know, not as good as mine. Paul is saying, actually, that person is indispensable in the local church. As important as you think that your hands, your physical hands are, and they are important, but as important as your physical hands are, your heart is more important than that. I mean, would you rather lose a hand or a heart? You, you can live without one. You cannot live without the other. Um, your physical body knows this. 
This is why hikers on Mount Everest come back with dead fingers and toes. Your body prioritizes what's getting the heat. And it's saying we're going to keep the core warm because you can lose those other things, even though we don't want to lose those either. The hidden parts of the body are more important. Your heart, your lungs, your liver, and your brain are essential for you to live. But you don't see these parts of the body. Your hands, feet, legs, ears, and eyes are not essential for you to live. Could it be then that in the church, the parts that appear to be weaker are actually more essential? This is what the text is saying. What you think, Corinthians, the Corinthians, remember, were prioritizing the showy gifts. So in their context, one of the, the, the things that they prized more than anything else was the gift of tongues. And, and Paul is saying, why are, you, why are you acting as if this were more important than someone who, has a, who, 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 who can pray and intercede like nobody else in the prayer closet? Could it be that the quiet and reserved, and maybe I'll even say introverted, prayer warriors are the indispensable ones? And the extroverted out front members, maybe doing something showy. Uh, how are we evaluating the value of the giftedness? Don't ever underestimate the power of the prayer closet. Someone has said one time, you are what you are on your knees and no more. So why would we say that that person is not as valuable as me because I have the out front showy thing? But not only this, the parts that we think less honorable get more honor. This is what the text says, verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, Paul is talking about the physical body, and he is using it as a metaphor. Of course, we know this. He is talking about the physical body with hands and feet and eyes and ears, and he's comparing that to the church and saying in much the same way the church operates that way. One of you is a hand, and one of you is a foot, and one of you is an ear, and one of you is an eye, and because of this, we all need one another. Uh, and he says that there are less honorable and unpresentable parts of your body physically which require modesty. Now, Paul is obviously being very discreet here, uh, and I will do the same and simply say that we understand his point. There are certain parts of the body that require modesty, that require being covered up, but the fact they must be covered up does not imply worthlessness. This is the point that he's making. Just because something requires modesty does not mean that it is worthless or that it has nothing to contribute to your body physically. And then, of course, take that as a metaphor to the church corporately. 
John MacArthur observes this. He says, the most vital ministries in a church always include some that are not obvious. The faithful prayers and services of a few dedicated saints who hold no office frequently are the most reliable and productive channels of spiritual power in a congregation. Then he goes on to say this. Every sensible person is more concerned with his heart than his hair. And then another commentator says, in fact, the true value of a particular body part is often, and I'll add not always, is often inversely proportionable, proportional to its outward appearance. And the point is well taken. Life in the church is different from the world. We are not clamoring over top of one another, trying to get to the top of the ladder first. We are, according to these passages, 12 through 14, we are a family. And we saw this a couple of weeks ago. And we said that we ought to act like one. And just because you perceive another member as not having as much value in the church doesn't make that true. In fact, oftentimes their role is more crucial than you realize. Which takes us to uh, the second half of verse 24 um, through the end of 25, where he says this, But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that, see the word that there? That there may be no division in the body. The reason that God has given greater honor to the part that lacks it is for a reason, and that reason is given in the text, and that reason is so that there would be unity and not division. So, the parts that lack honor, and by the way, this shifts from culture to culture, okay? Um, The culture perceives different gifts in the church as more valuable and less valuable, and every culture has its own ranking system, okay? Um, So, whatever that is, um, whatever that part is uh, to you or to our culture, the parts that lack, lack honor, um, those are the parts that God has given greater honor to. Those parts that may not be as interesting to you, those parts God gives more honor to. And he does it for a very specific reason, and the reason is what? That there may be no division in the body. What this means is that God honors the members of the church that you don't think are worth honoring. And he does that so there's no division. He does that so that we would care for one another. Because the temptation is what? What is your temptation and what is my temptation? The temptation is to violate verse 25 and live so that the members don't have the same care for one another. Anyone else tempted to do this? To not have the same care? for one another in the body. If we were honest, human nature drives us to care for our own little club or our own clique, but God wants us to be whole church Christians. He, he wants us to love and serve every member. Well, you're not an ear, so I <laughs> no value. What? He wants us to swallow our pride, to hate division, 
and to work out conflict instead of just running to the church next door. He wants us to be so committed and so dedicated to our local church that if someone, anyone, is hurting here, we are all hurting. If just one person in this church is hurting, physically or whatever, it is to grieve us. It is to cut the heart. And that's exactly what the next verse says. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Likewise, if anyone here at Crossview Church is honored, we all rejoice together. Chrysostom says this, the head is crowned and the whole man is honored. And that is true enough. It just takes one person to be blessed or to have honor here at Crossview for all of us to celebrate that. MacArthur, again, observes this. There is no disdain for one another, no rivalry or competition, no envy or malice, no inferiority or superiority, but only love. Love that is patient, kind, and not jealous, boastful, or arrogant. Love that does not act unbecomingly or seek its own and is not easily provoked. Love that never rejoices in unrighteousness, but always rejoices in the truth, as we'll see next week more in 1 Corinthians 13. This really sets the bar high. Doesn't it? The, the beginning of this passage is addressing people who think they have no need of others in the church, or at least that group or that person. The way that uh, Scripture addresses those people here is more than what we would expect. You might expect the Bible to say, okay, listen up, stop looking down on your brother. We, they're welcome at this church too. If the Bible left it there, it would be calling you to merely tolerate your brother. I'll attend this church with that person, but I won't like it. But the Bible goes further than that in at least two ways. First, this passage exhorts us that God honors that person that you are dishonoring. Not only does that person come from this place of dishonor that you've placed them at to a position of neutrality. Oh, they're just a neutral member in the church. Okay, I won't hate them, but I won't love them either, and they'll be neutral. That God actually honored that person, ironically. And second, this passage instructs us that not only should you tolerate that person, but you should suffer when they suffer. Their suffering is your suffering. And, and, and their rejoicing is your rejoicing. Again, easy to do for the person that you like, not so easy to do for the person that you don't like. Do not be resentful when they get a promotion. That is your celebration, too. Do not be indifferent when they experience a loss. That is your loss, too. This is a bridge too far for many. I'm okay with loving them as long as I don't have to like them. You have to love them and you have to like them. And by the way, I'm really confused by this, okay? The word love is a stronger word than like. And I don't know where we have gone astray in our culture to somehow think the word like is stronger than love. I'll love them as long as I don't have to like them, okay? Loving someone is liking them plus more. It's, it's strong. So when the Bible says you have to love this person, you have to do more than liking them. Uh, love in that context for us has somehow become, I tolerate them, which I don't know how this has happened, but uh, this is where we are. Do you love the person sitting in the pew next to you? Well, of course I do. 
Do you like the person sitting in the pew next to you? Well, that's a different matter altogether. <laughs> in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7, God tells Israel that he, has, he, he set his love on you. It doesn't say he set his like on you. It says he set his love on you. If you love someone, then you like them plus more than that. Love is one of the strongest terms of affection that we could possibly express for someone else. And we are called to love our fellow church members so much that we are grieved when they are and we celebrate when they do. We are not called to tolerate one another here. We are called to love one another here. If this is true, if we are called to suffer when they suffer and rejoice when they rejoice, then the corollary is also true. Don't rejoice when they suffer or suffer when they rejoice. I mean, it would be better for you to just be neutral, although you shouldn't be neutral. But it would be better for you to be neutral than to go to that extreme. Anyone ever done this before, by the way? Rejoiced when someone else suffers and suffer when someone else rejoices. Anyone? I've done, I have, okay? Like two of you have? Okay. <laughs> Has anyone ever lied before? <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is even worse than doing nothing at all. Someone here at Crossview Church loses their job and you think, <laughs> I knew they weren't cut out for that. Are you serious? Your brother or sister for whom Christ died? And you're going to take that attitude towards that individual? I mean, what does the verse say? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Put off your pride. Put it off. Swallow the pride and love the person sitting in the pew next to you. This leads us to recognize the diversity of spiritual gifts God has given to the church. He is saying, if one suffers, you all suffer. If one rejoices, you all rejoice. And now he says, let me just give you a sample of the diversity of giftedness in the church, and remind you that you're not better than one person or because you have this gift or that gift. Beginning in verse 27, he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret but earnestly desire the higher gifts? And I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, first we note here in verse 27 a theme that we've seen in chapter 12, and that theme is one body and many members. Okay? We're not to to view one to the exclusion of the other. We're not to be individualistic in the sense that we think, I don't need the body, and we're not to allow the church to erase uh, the individuals within the church, and so on and so forth. And then we see a theme that we emphasized last time, because 
Uh, It is here again, and this is actually the third time in chapter 12 that this specific theme is stated directly, and that is the word appointed. And God has appointed in the church. Okay, and what was the theme that we saw in the previous two times this came up? That God is doing the deciding. You're not doing the deciding. Like... The, the distribution of gifts that are here at Crossview Church is not because you signed up and got this particular... God assigned that to you. Okay, God has appointed that to you. Uh, this is part of God's sovereignty, providence. So first, God has assigned apostles in the list here. These men were assigned by God at the beginning of the church and are no longer being assigned. They were uh, authenticated through miraculous gifts. If you were an apostle, there were um, a couple of ways in which you were authenticated. And one of the ways that an apostle in the church was authenticated was their ability to do miraculous gifts. Okay, 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Okay? This is what you had to do in order to demonstrate, one of the things, to demonstrate that you were an apostle. Apostles were given, and it says, first, because they were gifted by God in the foundation building stage of the church. Apostles also needed to have witnessed the resurrected Christ, and they needed to be appointed by Christ himself directly. Now, I will say that this is an interesting uh, observation here, that even, even Wayne Grudem, who is a continuist and not a cessationist, believes that the office of apostle has ended. And I'll give you a quote from him. He says, It seems that no apostles were appointed after Paul, and certainly since no one today can meet the qualifications of having seen the risen Christ with his own eyes, there are no apostles today. So even Wayne Grudem himself, who would differ from us in a number of ways in this area on the spiritual gifts, he also acknowledges that this is one of the things that has ended. He was given first apostles, foundation. Now that the church has begun, uh, that is not uh, needed. Then we have uh, teachers Uh, They are gifted with explaining God's word. There is a considerable amount of overlap between a teacher and a preacher, although they're not the same thing. Um, I think there is a difference. Miracles is next. Those, again, uh, I would say are temporary. Richard Baxter says this as well. He says the promise of the Holy Ghost was for perpetuity, to sanctify all believers, but the promise of the special gift of miracles was for a time, because it was for a special use, a temporary season, uh, to uh, demonstrate the validity of the New Testament and the apostles. Miracles, like apostles, were gifted to the church for a season. Gifts of healing is next. Again, something temporary. Um, Let me just make an observation here um, that this does not mean that God does not uh, 
perform miracles. Uh, if you wanted to look at it in one sense, every law of science is a miracle in that sense. Um, God does do things in providence. He does do things through his great might and his great power, and he does do miracles. We are saying that the gift of healing does not exist today, but again was for the building of the church and the foundations. Could you get cancer? And then God miraculously heals that cancer. Yes. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying the gift of healing, which is something different. If anyone here in the church at Crossview has the gift of healing, I want to know why you've been holding out on us. Okay? Because I can point to some people who could use that. The the, the gift of healing is a gift where a person could go up and just place their hands on someone and heal that person. And that is different from saying that God can perform a healing or a miracle. Um, Next is helps. This is a kind of general and generic. There's not a lot of uh, specific details given here. It could really cover a large range of things. Um, it, it, It can cover... Um, something as simple as stacking the chairs. And I, I don't want to, to, to make light of that because the church needs that. Okay? Um, but those kinds of things would be uh, helps. Uh, administration, bringing organization to the church. Tongues, speaking a language that you've never studied before, which again I would say is foundational, and we will see more of this in 1 Corinthians 13. We did see a little bit of it a couple weeks ago in terms of uh, the temporary nature of this gift. And by the way, I'll reiterate this again, the gift of tongues in the New Testament is not speaking gibberish, okay? You can go to school today to learn how to speak gibberish. There are people who teach you how to speak in tongues, and there's some kind of a, a method to this of picking words that rhyme with one another, and I don't understand it, and it's gibberish, okay? The gift of tongues in the New Testament was speaking a language, like if you had never studied German before, and you went over to Germany, you could suddenly start speaking German. And that is the gift of of tongues in the New Testament. Then he asks rhetorically here whether everyone has these gifts. And the way that the Greek is constructed, uh, it expects a negative answer, no. Does everyone have this? Does everyone have this? Does everyone have this? No. They don't. And what what is the point of of this. The, the, the point is saying, you don't have all the gifts. Nobody has all the gifts. And so what do you need? You need one another. And then he concludes with verse 31, and he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Um, what does he mean when he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts? I don't know. Does this, does this feel a little like what's going on here? Paul, you just got done telling us. You just finished telling us. It's your not to look down on this person because they're not gifted in this way and, and so on and so forth. And, and there shouldn't be competition between the spiritual gifts and, uh, you know, oh, by, by the way, desire the, the higher ones. 
It seems counterintuitive because he just rebuked them for playing favoritism with their gifts. It sounds like he's saying, and I'm going to say sounds like, if you read this quickly, it sounds like he's saying, stop thinking that some gifts are more important or needful than others. And by the way, desire the more important and needful gifts. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Uh, there, there are, there's actually a handful of um, ways in which pastors and commentators and Christians have understood this. Um, some understand this to be more of an observation than a command, even though it is an imperative verb. Um, so, in other words, it's, 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 it's an indicative with a little bit of a rebuke. Instead of saying, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, he's saying, you guys are just desiring the higher gifts. Stop it. That kind of a, a, a gist to it. Uh, MacArthur thinks that's the case, actually. Um, and by the way, I look through all of my English Bible translations, which uh, I think I have around 40 or 50 different ones, and I read every single one of them on this verse, and only one Bible translation translated that way, if that says anything. The overwhelming consensus at least in Bible translations, is that as the ESV translates it, it is correct because it is an imperative verb. He's saying you should desire the higher gifts. Some people understand this to be um, he's being sarcastic. Okay, go ahead. Desire the higher gifts. Fine. Um, some think he's being permissive. Well, if you're just going to desire them, then just you're going to do it anyways and go ahead and desire them. Um, I don't think any of these, I, there doesn't seem to be anything contextually that would cause us to interpret those things out of the ordinary like that. Um, I think what Paul is doing is he just demolished their view of gifts, and now he's telling them to desire the opposite gifts of the ones that he's been telling them to do. It's kind of like this. It's as if he were saying, you've been desiring all the flashy and showy gifts, and you fail to realize the greatness of the quiet gifts like prayer in a prayer closet. So start desiring those important gifts. Start desiring that you would be, that you would be diligent in prayer. And stop acting like children. It's, it's almost as if he were, he were saying, you think these are the higher gifts, but actually these are the higher gifts. Go desire those. It's almost as if that's what he was saying. In other words, adopt a different view of what's important. And then he says, even in this, even in this, I'm going to still show you something better. I'm going to show you a still more excellent way. Something even better than all of this. Something better than this rat race of trying to say, I'm better than you because I have this gift and you're worse than me because you have that gift. What is that more excellent way? Oh, that's chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. You guys know what 1 Corinthians 13 is, right? Okay? It has been called the love chapter. It tells us what love is. And remember that chapter 13 is in the middle of the, of the section on spiritual gifts in context. And so what is this more excellent way? Well, for that, we're going to have to wait until next week because we're going to start into 1 Corinthians 13 and see how he describes love in the context of the church. So where do we go from here? Well, 
for starters, we're to live like a family. That much we know. We're not to engage in competition with one another and say, I'm gifted in this flashy, showy way, and so therefore I'm better than you. And in light of this, I have three points of application today. The first point of application is that we are to reject individualism and be committed to involvement in the local church. This whole section in chapter 12 has been hitting on this point again and again and again. It is, it is rebuking the individual who thinks that either the church doesn't need them or they don't need the church. So the exhortation is to, to kind of lean in to one another. That's application number one. Number two, do not look at other church members as inferior to yourself. Don't walk around with your nose in the air and think that you are somehow better than them. And then the final point of application is love other church members to the point or love other church members so much that you suffer when they do and you rejoice when they do. Don't do the opposite of that. Don't rejoice when they suffer and suffer when they rejoice. And don't even go a step above that and just be neutral. Actually be cut to the heart when they're cut to the heart. Let their grief be your grief. Let their rejoicing be your rejoicing. This has been some instruction in the New Testament on how we are to live in the local church. We are to not be like the world. We are to be like the church. And if you are not in the church, and by that I mean you are not in Christ, then repent and believe in the gospel. This is different than the world. This is different than their relationships and their fellowships and all of that. This is the church, the body of Christ. And of course, as always, I would be happy to talk with you more about how you might know Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your grace, love, your mercy, your kindness. Help us now to love you more, to love and be committed to the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.